0: And you know David and I are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be.
1: We sure are, and you know we love talking and learning about everything related to sex and sexuality, sexual health, and of course, sexual pleasure.
0: We love diving deep into the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown, and we hope our discussions open up your dialogue about great sex because, well, great sex matters, and we all deserve it. We
1: sure do. So...
0: Do you feel safe
1: being your true, authentic self? Perhaps you're constantly covering up fear, shame, grief, and trauma, causing a negative impact on your sexuality.
0: Well, on today's show, we're going to uncover ways to calm your cardiovascular system to flush out sexual trauma or any other type of trauma to access a deeper sense of presence during sex and connection and to reconnect with your partner in a more balanced state of mind.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because, you know, being with your partner during sex is more of than just your body being there, but you have to be there, mind, body, mm-hmm. soul, mm-hmm. everything. This All is of be, it a great show but like we do every show we're going to take a minute to talk about our top waterproof blanket because great sex is messy sex but nobody wants to sleep in that wet spot so if you're fed up with having to change your sheets every time you have sex then you need one of our Top Waterproof Blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof, and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets.
0: From messy massage oils or silicone lubes to all sorts of sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer, and it comes out looking like brand new. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely go to Amazon and order yours today. Search Top Waterproof Blanket, that's T-O-P, Waterproof Blanket, great sex starts now
1: it sure does and we want to tell everybody about our new color for our blanket it's uh, pink on one side and blue on the other and these are actually the same colors as the pink ribbon for supporting breast cancer and the blue ribbon that supports prostate cancer
0: Our mission for this new blanket is to support survivors in their journey to returning to a normal sex life. We will donate $5 per blanket sold to a charity that helps survivors get back in the sack.
1: Love it. Get back in the sack. So to find out more, go to our website, topwaterproofblanket.com, to find out how you can join and help in our mission and buy your pink and blue blanket on Amazon today. Thanks so much for your support. All right, enough of ads. Let's get on with the show. You know we're Carol and David. This is The Sexy Lifestyle, and we are so excited to welcome today's special guest.
0: Greg Whiting is the founder of Prisma. He helps people heal anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and trauma.
1: All right, Greg, we know you're a busy man. Thanks for taking some time out of
0: your day and being with us here today.
2: Hey, Carol, David. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Wow, our pleasure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this realm of healing trauma? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I developed Prisma really out of my own journey healing myself. Um, you know, if you met me 25 years ago, I was suffering from debilitating chronic pain, anxiety, depression. Um, and I was just inches away from antidepressants and pain meds, right? That's all I really knew. And in high school, um, college, I was mostly just medicating with alcohol. And I realized that that wasn't the path for me. Uh, By serendipity, I was introduced to uh, an energy healer, who at the time actually offered me a massage. And I was living in so much pain, I did not want touch like my body was just suffering. That physical touch just wasn't helpful. Um, and she said, well, let's not even do a massage. I can offer you some Reiki, which energy medicine Reiki was completely foreign. I had never heard of this world, but I had implicit trust in this friend. And I said, let's, let's go for it. And I immediately realized I found something I didn't even know I was looking for that I really needed. Um, it was as if I kind of floated above my pain body that had just been a lifetime of chronic tension, chronic holding and gripping. And it's like for the first time, I got a taste of myself like, you know, who am I beyond my pain? Right. And that was just a big awakening, because at that point, you know, all I knew was my pain. So that had been my identity. You know, my whole sense of self was organized around that pain. So to get a glimpse of myself outside of that pain was (laughs) pretty spectacular. Um so that led me on a journey you know energy medicine led me to mindfulness and somatics and starting to release stored tension and trauma in the body and then that led me to the world of yoga and ayurveda and then trauma and neuroscience and so I kind of was just following these breadcrumbs and um along the way you know I also suffered from scoliosis a really severe curve in my spine uh, that started to unravel. Today I'm three inches taller than I was 25 wow. years ago and no longer live in pain, no longer have anxiety or depression. Um, and so just finding ways to just liberate my life force energy, just opening up the flow of my, my life force um, and how that's just a really potent healing force.
0: So, when you uh, were that young and you did Reiki or energy medicine for the very first time, is that what healed your back right away or the pain went away instantly or how did that work?
2: I mean, no, that first experience, I got a glimpse of who I was outside of my pain. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my experience of my pain body kind of subsided for a moment and that was a glimpse. And, you know, I'd say over those 20 years, the spine. Unraveled gradually, you know the 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 masks and the the costuming of wounding and pain started to dissolve slowly. Oh. Um, so that's a, a process, you know. Healing's not a cool. not one and done. There's no silver bullets. Cool. Yeah.
1: So yeah. so let's let's start right from the beginning. Greg, tell us a little bit about what is trauma and how does it manifest itself in our bodies.
2: Sure. You know, a lot of people associate trauma with, you know, being the victim of, you know, uh, of violence, you know, coming back from a war zone, PTSD, you know, being a refugee. But really, trauma is any lived experience where we uh, feel isolated and alone and not supported and where our system can't fully metabolize or process the overwhelm. Right. And so we lose access to our upper brain of logic and reason, and we are defaulting to kind of this sense of survival. Right. So we lack safety, we lack support, we lack connection. Um, and so, in that sense, that tr- imprints of trauma get stored in the body. Right. And that's going to be creating a whole lot of residue. That stagnation of emotion is creating inflammation. You know that is creating brain fog that's impacting hormonal balance you know that's going to lock up the pelvic floor because the psoas muscles are kind of holding in this fear state so you know i look at illness and disease as stagnation and when we have the imprints of trauma stored in the body it's just going to freeze up the system right and i look at health as movement and expression and circulation So the impacts of trauma, you know, really calcify in the body and are going to impact physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health.
0: So besides, like you said, the uh, PTSD uh, of um, people who are soldiers and people who have seen war, what are some other types of trauma that people can have, whether it's sexual trauma or everyday trauma? What are some examples, if people don't know, it's not so extreme as that?
2: Yeah. You know, I think uh, the more insidious form of trauma is – often a lack of emotional attunement and support and connection in early development, Mm -hmm. right? Neglect, abandonment. So if we're not receiving reliable, consistent support and care in early development, you know, it, it feels as if our needs may not be met and in early development, if our needs aren't met, that can literally signal life or death, right? Mm -hmm. So if our primary caregivers uh, aren't offering that consistent, reliable care, Um, that's going to start to set up a whole set, a whole organization around hypervigilance, right? And that's going to set us up for this, this fight, flight, freeze or appease responses. And I think that's the most insidious because we're thinking, well, nothing bad happened to me, right? It's like, well, trauma can be too much too soon or too much too long or not enough for too long. So if we don't get enough of what we need for long enough, that's, going to have a really corrosive effect.
0: Now, I know it's not your mainstay where you do all of, all of your work, but we're going to be talking about sexual trauma today. So let's get a few examples of sexual trauma, which we know for sure if you were raped, of course, that's a sexual trauma. But what could be some of those insidious types of, of sexual trauma that you mentioned that we might not even realize have affected us?
2: Sure. You know, I think we we're, we're multifaceted. We're body, mind, and spirit, right? And so um, we may have consensual sex intellectually, but is our body on board, right? Um, and so there could be more of a subtle freeze response where we are engaging in sex, but part of our system isn't really on board, you know, and has shut down. Um, and oftentimes trauma is going to you know, hijack our agency uh, or hijack our capacity to communicate and express our needs or to actually even know what our needs are. Mm -hmm. So we can be going through the motions. And yet there's a, a, a deeper part of us that's, you know, not aligned. And I'm just thinking in early development, right? How the good little girl is asked to, you know, give a hug to her drunk uncle that she doesn't want to, but her parents are saying, go do this thing. Mm -hmm. And so how do we start to override our own needs? How do we start to override our own desires? And if we do that long enough, then we actually lose touch with our own needs, our own desires. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, and that's creating this, this freeze response where we lose our own capacity to even feel ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a subtle way that, yeah, we may not be fully on board with the lives we're living and with the sex we're having.
0: Now, I think those are great examples. Now, would you say that, let's say, I can remember in my dating years where I've agreed to have sex with somebody. You don't know how it's going to turn out because you're maybe having sex for the first time with that guy or the girl, depending who you are. Um But so you do it anyways, like you you go through it, you you want it to be good sex, you're trying really hard, you're trying to get into it, and it's just just not feeling right. And then but you do it again because you think, well, that was the first time we never have great sex the first time. And you kind of continue doing it. That's the kind of pattern that you end up getting in. And the more you do this without the right feeling, you're saying the more traumatic effect could happen on our body.
2: Yeah, if we continue to override, you know, the signals in our body that's going to lend itself to just a a more of a numbing, right? Um, And more of a dissociated state where we're just no longer in touch with, with our needs, Mm -hmm. with our desires, with who we are. Um, And so I think healing affords us more of a capacity to, to get in touch with who we are and the more we can feel ourselves, that's a pathway to more presence and more agency, Mm -hmm. right? And that frees up more choice that frees up more that frees up more capacity to ask for what we need, but with a lot of developmental trauma, you know, it could feel really threatening to ask for what we need. I right? guess
1: I guess that's why you know we talk about consent being so paramount, consent and respect. That um, you know, if you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol, you 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 can't give that big enthusiastic yes because you know you have things going on in your brain that your brain's not working properly. And then you go and you, you have sex with someone and the next day you're, you're, you're not feeling good because you the, weren't...
0: The regrets you mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I shouldn't have done that?
1: I shouldn't have done or that. Or the shame being... And then, and then you end up in a situation where, you know, I guess you can carry it with you for months and years down the path that I shouldn't have had sex with this guy. He was married or with this girl because she was married and you did it just because you were under the influence. Mm,
0: yeah. That could be another example, right? Yeah,
2: I mean, when we're intoxicated, that's lending itself to yeah, just not not having all of our faculty. Right, that's the word I was looking for.
0: it's more than six letters. I had problems with
2: it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think there's. uh, Do you think there's anybody who hasn't really experienced trauma that doesn't have some trauma that's maybe blocking something in their lives?
2: No, I think if we have a pulse, we have trauma. You know, we live in a world that is feeding off of alienation and isolation and fear. And that's the breeding ground for trauma. You know, in terms of sexual identity and sexual expression, there's just so much cultural repression. There's so much cultural shame and judgment that is projected upon. So, you know, it's hard for people to even get in touch with who they are on a really essential, authentic level of sexual expression. Um, you know, I'm queer and to explore my sexuality is very much like a radical act in a world that otherwise is telling me it's wrong to be me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and we don't need to be queer to have that. Just all cultural conditioning has demonized sexuality. and, And I look at sexuality as just our creative life force. So, you know, If we have repressed sexual energy, that's not just impacting our sex lives, that's impacting our potential in all aspects. And I find, you know, my, my sexual energy is my vitality. So when I'm aligned sexually, I'm aligned professionally, I'm aligned relationally, I'm aligned, you know, with my creativity, and that's helping to kind of fuel My vision and my passion and possibility it's all connected
1: but it's very very interesting um, what you just said because um, Carol and I are swingers and we live in that alternative lifestyle as well which shouldn't really be alternative because we should be able to be free to choose who and how we have sex the same way in um, the LGBTQ plus world you know, we, we put this definition or this label on people who just want to be themselves. However, society says, you know what, You're, you are you you stand out there differently. And I have to assume that and we see it in the in the swing world all the time where the, everybody's underground. They keep these secrets and, and the things that they can't tell their kids and they have to hide all this stuff. And that has to be another type of mental trauma that they have that they just can't be their authentic selves.
2: Yeah, I mean keeping secrets is that's that's very corrosive right Absolutely. and that, and that's just fueling shame and mm-hmm. you know, and that's perpetuating other cycles of fear and you know how I'm working is always mapping this through the body so as i mentioned kind of the the fear response in the psoas that then lock up the pelvis right And, you know, there's a natural movement of the pelvic floor with our breath. And I can't tell you how many folks I've worked with over the years where, including myself, you know, my pelvis used to be completely locked, you know. So when I was living with chronic pain and the severe curve of my spine, you know, the costuming and the patterning of my wounding, was all protective strategies because it you know the signals from my lived experience and from the abuse i experienced and from the world was it's not safe to be me it's not safe to express myself as who i am and that is going to hold itself through our musculoskeletal system our hormonal system our beliefs you know and and have a, a, a really direct impact on all aspects of who we are. So true.
0: And I can kind of remember that when our our marriages failed, um, well, 17 years ago now, and they failed at the same time because our exes dumped us and we ended up getting together as well. Um, But at that particular time in my life, I remember a big sigh of relief when I met David and we discovered that we both had parallel sexual desires and that we were really misaligned with our partners in our first marriages and we found each other and we really had... Uh, monkey you know, sex. Yeah, we had crazy, amazing sex for years before we fell into the lifestyle of the swinging lifestyle. And then when we did and we had multiple partners with the same crazy monkey sex, uh, you know. Um, we found our tribe. <laughs> yeah, we found our tribe. And I remember the feeling just a, ah, this is where I was meant to be. And it was such an amazing feeling. And that went on for years and years uh, until I went through menopause and all my hormones changed again. But it was just an amazing discovery that we can have connection like Dave and I found in each other and then connection with other people too. And that's why we made the decision to tell our family and friends because we thought that would negate everything if we just kept that secret. So we ended up telling everyone and again, more elation, more relief that we could just be our authentic selves out in the open not hiding it from our kids and friends not that they want to hear any stories or hear about what we do but we don't have to hide that we go to naked sw- beaches, naked and swinger, beaches cruises. And swinger cruises and, we, and can, we have sex toys yeah and and they can ask a question if they want but they don't usually but they know they can and that really freed us from so many things like so many feelings and Especially emotions you. yeah
1: absolutely remember the first time you shaved your pussy hair
0: <laughs> yeah I was afraid my daughter would was going to see it. And, and I would look different one day from another. So anyways, I was very hesitant till I found out that she just been waxed herself. So <laughs> I was good by then. <laughs> no trauma there. <laughs> yeah. So let's get well, yeah. a, You you did touch on how uh, trauma affects the body, the physical body, but go through like parts of the body where trauma can really impact. Sure.
2: I mean, it can it can impact any part of the body, but all the different parts of the body are carrying a different consciousness, if you will. So, you know, the, the the knees, for example, you know, very much help us take steps forward, right? And the kidney meridian flows through the knees. In Chinese medicine, kidneys store fear. So if there's trauma that was stored in the knees, that's going to impact our ability to take steps forward, right? We may have uh, a disproportionate fear around taking steps forward or a fear of survival right there's a healthy fear of survival if a truck's running down the road i want to run out of the road and not get hit but the unhealthy fear of survival is when i'm actually no longer in danger but i'm still you know playing out these worst case scenarios of survival right so that's what can be stored in the knees let's say or the pelvis right and the hips the pelvis is all about sensuality and sexuality right so if we have Trauma stored in the hips and the pelvis and the sacrum. The consciousness of the sacrum is support, foundations, you know, stability, fluidity. It's a balance of, like, earth and water elements, so grounding and stability and presence, and then water, fluidity, expression, creativity. So if we have trauma stored in the pelvic floor and the pelvic floor gets locked up, well, that's going to distort our relationship to sexuality, right? Um, And, you know, the shoulders, the consciousness of responsibility, So all of these consciousness, you know, creativity, expression, sexuality, taking steps forward, responsibility are neutral. But how we relate to these these consciousnesses are anything but neutral, right? So some of us can feel empowered by responsibility and other people can feel like they're carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, right? And that's going to show up in their posture. That's going to show up in their behaviors and their beliefs and all of their identity constructs that they hold about themselves, so healing is just helping to to neutralize the energetic emotional physiological charge around these consciousness. So, you know, we aren't, you know, we aren't harboring wounding. So it just frees us up to live in the authentic expression of our sexuality. It just frees us up to take those steps forward and it just frees us up to be responsible without making a story up around what responsibility is or isn't.
1: Cool, cool, cool. So before we get into your seven pillars of your Prisma framework, Carol and I had a question, and it has to do with the energy in your body. How do you know when it's out of alignment?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, how I work is non-diagnostic and non-prescriptive. So I'm never, you know, telling a client that their energy is blocked. My job, and even with working with trauma, I help people feel trauma, but I'm actually not focusing on trauma. You know, my job is to connect people to their innate wisdom. And that innate wisdom is like the intelligence that heals a paper cut, right? There's some wisdom in the body that sends platelets and proteins and orchestrates all these biochemical transmissions. So my job is just to help people align to that innate wisdom, and that frees up their natural capacity to heal. So I'm not really focused on the energy that's blocked. I'm just focusing on helping people plug into what gets them back in connection um, but you know the, these distortions can show up if you know people are presenting with you know dysfunction in their pelvis or you know having in you know difficulty with sexual expression and that's going to clue me in that there's probably something happening you know at the foundational level of you know the the perineum and the pelvis and the genitals um, you know so but the interesting thing is that doesn't necessarily mean I'm treating that area. You know, I had another client years ago, um, that actually was coming to me for infertility and she had done all of like the pelvic floor treatments. Cause it's like, well, if there's something with the reproductive system going on, let's treat the reproductive system and let's treat the parts of the body that are surrounding the reproductive system. But her system guided me to actually release her occiput. And as we were doing this release at the back of her neck and the back of her skull, she had a memory of when she got a concussion at the age of five. So that concussion, you know, actually then her system had a response to the concussion that froze up her pelvic floor. So despite her doing all these years of work to release the pelvic floor, her body actually needed to address a deeper imbalance that was part of why the pelvic floor got locked up. Wow. So, you know, I think we can get kind of caught in like treating symptoms, right? Where it's like, well, the pelvic floor and sexuality may be locked up because of other things going on.
0: Wow. And so, so how did you discover that? Like, what was your clue?
2: My methodology is such where I'm tuning into that innate wisdom and actually following it. I'm inviting it to guide me. Right. So there's there's some level of intuition that is inviting me to say you know actually this isn't where your system wants support your system's guiding me to do a release elsewhere um, and part of my methodology and techniques is I'm working with neuromuscular biofeedback which is allowing me to consult the body's innate wisdom and ask very specific yes/ no questions to guide me in the treatment process to, help to restore the internal communication that is going to help the system come back online and free up, you know, the, the energy pathways that have been blocked.
0: Wow. Wow. That's cool. Now, when we talk about energy medicine, um, I know I was mentioning it to my son yesterday. He says, energy medicine, like what energy, what kind of energy does the body have that, that you can help with? I mean yeah. there's kinetic energy, there's potential energy, there's thermodynamic energy. What is the he's an engineer? Yeah. What is the human energy that you work with?
2: Yeah. So I look at everything as energy, whether it is a belief, whether it is a memory, whether it is a muscle, whether it's an emotion, whether it's a tissue, a tendon, a ligament, an organ, a hormone, a neurotransmitter. It's all vibration. So energy medicine is concerned with the relationship between all these parts. So I think what's helpful is if you imagine the body as a symphony orchestra, every part of the body, every cell, every tissue, when we're experiencing health, is in constant communication. And that constant communication is creating the music, right? That's how a symphony orchestra, when all the different parts are tuned in, there's this harmonic resonance, there's this musicality of being. You know, illness and disease set in, let's say, from trauma and stress that short-circuit the nervous system. And when the nervous system gets short-circuited, communication between all those parts starts to break down. So then instead of music, we start to create a whole lot of noise. So the function of energy medicine is to break up the noise and restore communication between the cells and the tissues and the parts. And in doing so, then the body's innate wisdom can come back online, and that's when healing happens Mm -hmm. um, naturally. So instead of me trying to fix or heal trauma, we're just restoring connection to innate wisdom. Mm -hmm. The noise clears out, and the music rebounds. Very
0: cool. And this type of um, healing can take how long, for example?
2: I mean, I look at healing as a nonlinear process, Um, you know, so... Within my first year of healing, I probably noticed a good half inch of my spine unravel and I started to get a lot of relief from my pain. Um, But it was probably a good 15 plus years for three inches of my spine to unravel. Wow. Um, You know, so that wasn't a one and done. Um, But, you know, a lot of my clients and students, you know, see really powerful, profound shifts, you know, within months. And, you know, I work with students and clients over a year long program. And, you know, providing the tools that then they can continue to apply through their lifetime. And is that like a
0: a weekly meeting?
2: um, There's all sorts of different kind of points of contact um, online and recorded. And yeah, so they have lots of different
0: support. Okay, very cool. All right. So I think it's time now to get into the program that you developed, the framework. And there are seven pillars that you want to tell us about. Um, Let's go through them one by one and talk a little bit about what the goals are and how you how you reach those uh, goals. Sure.
2: Yeah. So uh, regulate is the first pillar, really regulating the nervous system. It's like imagining a seaplane that wants to land on water. It bounces back off the water. It touches down. It bounces back. And so really training the nervous system to finally land. And that's helping people derive the psychological safety Um, that's necessary to heal right because trauma is keeping us in a fear response a survival response so nervous system regulation is like the foundational piece and that's helping people start to derive a relaxed alert awareness Um, and so that's that's
0: regulate and and what would be like an example in daily life of me being in a relaxed uh, state
1: you don't you don't know how to do that
0: no but i'm saying compared to now if i was to Am I regulated? I don't know. How would I know, for example?
2: yeah, it's a good question. I mean that's that's the work. It's starting to develop an awareness of are we regulated or not, and part of that is tracking kind of the what's driving the nervous system and starting to understand the fight, flight, freeze, or appease response, right? So when we lose access to our upper brain of logic and reason, you know, and we default to the survival brain, we're either going to go to hyper arousal, which is fight or flight, you know, we're either going to run from danger or we're going to fight against the danger. But we sometimes don't have access to those options. So then we move into the freeze response or the appease response, right? So starting to understand those responses and um, start to do uh, reverse engineer and kind of develop an understanding of where they originated and why they're coming online. Um, and you know, the mindfulness piece helps to kind of slow all of it down so we can start to tease it out because often these trauma responses, you know, triggers happen when we least expect it. And, you know, we aren't in control of, you know, this default survival pattern of the brain. It comes online. Um, so helping to, to reverse engineer that and understand it. So, so some,
1: some people, when you say something to them, a person one person takes his time and waits, processes the information, and comes out with a response. And then another person immediately comes out, maybe yells or screams or says something. And maybe 15 minutes later, goes back and says, oh, you know, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. Is, is that what you're talking about, where, you know, sometimes the, the, the brain deals with um, what's coming in differently?
2: Yeah, so that person that, you know, became argumentative, they flipped their lid, they lost access to logic and reason, and they defaulted to a fight response, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, Or that could be the person that defaults to a freeze response and is in a frozen state and just doesn't even know how to respond. And they're not fuming giving the other person the silent treatment, they've just gone into complete shutdown, Mm -hmm. right? Or the person who's in appease and just wants to make everything better, like the people pleasing mode. Right. So uh, these responses are all dependent upon, you know, what other emotions we have patterned around fear. Um, right. So if we have some anger or frustration pattern around fear, we're going to be more quick to that fight response. Mm-hmm. Right. If we have dismay and foreboding organized around fear, we're probably going to move into more of a, 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 an appease response. Mm-hmm. And so it's just starting to understand. The first phase of healing is just awareness, right? A non-judgmental awareness, and understanding that these responses are trying to protect us, right? So, so and in-
1: if I understand correctly, and I'm going to give me and Carol as an example because we're both opposites on how we deal with, a, Con- we'll conflict. call it a little bit of conflict. So something will come up, and Carol will yell and and make up um, her. Excuse not excuse her a point of view whereas most of the time I'll sit there and just be quiet and and not do anything and sometimes just like leave and if I understand what you're saying Neither one of those are good reactions to the, to the moment
2: uh, And I want to get out of good or bad I want okay. to move more towards um, What is maybe more or less optimal right oh. and so know sometimes these responses are the best we've got right but yeah so if you leave that leaving could be the flight response right right right. right. but in the moment maybe that's all the best you've got Mm -hmm. but healing happens when we start to bring more awareness to it oh why did i leave and so much of healing is broadening the window of tolerance right because these responses come on when we we are in overwhelm right and so as we broaden our window of tolerance we have more capacity to be with what has historically been too much too soon or too much too long or not enough for too long and as we start to metabolize what historically has been overwhelming we have a greater capacity to then be with what otherwise would be too much Um, and then we start to have again more agency and more choice so instead of fighting or running away we might be able to actually say, you know, when this happened, I felt this, and what I need is this, mm. right? So oftentimes, we're having a hard time identifying what we're feeling and what we need, mm. right? Kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier. So then we just, and so then, you know, in sex with consent, so then we might just freeze, a part of us might freeze, yeah, right? Like, Like the bird that flies into a window and it drops to the ground you think it's dead but it's just in shock Mm -hmm. right and it hasn't yet been able to metabolize and process the impact of hitting the window until finally it starts to like jolt and twitch and then it it flies off again right Mm -hmm. so right now we may fight or flight or freeze and then eventually we start to thaw off and start to understand and then we can come back to the table and say all right
0: yeah. Very wow. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Okay. The next pillar.
2: Um, so embody, and that's kind of like that same example of the bird that, that, you know, is frozen. So if we are harboring trauma in the body and uh, it's signaling to our body that it's not a safe place to inhabit. Right. So that's when we start to lose touch with ourselves. We leave our bodily experience and when we no longer can touch, be in touch with ourselves, we are losing presence and agency. Right. So embodiment is learning how to come back into the body, how to be somatically oriented. And that's going to help us be more in touch with, you know, our needs, our desires. And that's Um,
0: something sexually that we really want to make sure that we keep in mind. Right. So we can continue to enjoy our sexual experiences and not freeze and or leave (laughs) during those unwanted um, or, or whatever, just really work through them.
2: Yeah. I mean, and just even another example, even with like really great sex, but are people present or are they in their heads? Are they elsewhere? And not to say fantasy can be a great part of sex too, but, or is just the mind, not even in fantasy, the mind is just like literally thinking about, you know, the to-do list of tomorrow, right? So how we lack our ability to be present or our ability to really feel what what is and make contact with what is. Um, and that's not just physically, that's emotionally, that's energetically, that's spiritually.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Pillar number three. Uh, Attunement. And
2: so that's really emotional intelligence, right? So I think embodiment helps us get in touch with our own needs and our own desires. And then emotional intelligence through attunement is how do we have that awareness in relationship to others? So how can we use stress and conflict as a means to to connection right as a bridge to connection Um, and so being able to have those conversations and you know work with conflict in meaningful ways to create bridges of understanding Um, and that's the big relational piece because so much wounding and trauma happens in relationship right there's been a breach of trust there's been a wounding a pain a harm so that then continues to invite people to just isolate right and do their own thing um, but the heart of healing happens relationally, right? We're social creatures. As mammals, we're not meant to live in isolation. You know, there's a big part of how, yes, there's some things we can do to self-soothe, but we co-regulate, right, um, in relationship. So how do we how do we navigate this messy world together?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, we're going to ask you to hang on for a sec, Greg. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with the other four points of um the seven that the seven pillars that we're talking to um we're going to remind everyone that this is the sexy lifestyle we are carolyn david we're having a great conversation with greg whiting founder of prisma um who has a framework for healing anxiety depression chronic Mm -hmm. pain and trauma and uh
0: let's just tell everybody about topless travel and the fun events we have coming up this year.
1: For sure. And you know, we talk about topless travel all the time. They are the best. And if you're looking for the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever, then you simply must book with topless travel. From Hito 2 in Jamaica, Desire in Cancun, um, and all the Bliss Cruise experiences, topless travel <coughs> needs to be your number one choice.
0: And their trips and events, of course, are all about the people and their sexy, fun experiences. Let's just shout out to their sexy host couples like party mark and chelsea they're there to ensure that you have one one hell of a sexy vacation
1: absolutely and like we are here you'll find us on lots of the amazing topless travel trips but listen up we're going back to hedonism too you know that's the place a couple years ago we stayed for 89 days we go there at least two three times a year but we're going back in february for another sexy silver event from february 25th to march 1st As always with topless travel, the rooms are selling out fast. And if you don't want to miss the biggest lifestyle party on Negril Beach, then you need to go and book your room now. And of
0: course, for more information about this trip or any of the other topless travel events, simply go to thesexylifestyle.com and click on the topless travel events link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. Ever, ever, ever. And also, let's remind everyone that if you're looking for an online, open-minded community to find compatible people and events in your area, simply join SDC.com and use promo code 30314 to get your first month free.
1: Absolutely. All righty. Let's get back to the show. You know, this is A Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and we're having a great discussion with Greg Whiting from Prisma. Uh, Let's keep going with the seven pillars that we started uh, just before the break, and then we're going to talk about great sex. Mm -hmm.
0: Of course. So let's just review. We talked about regulating, uh, embodying, and attuning. Let's go on to the next pillar, please.
2: Yeah, orient is really about deriving a sense of belonging within the heart, you know, and really working with values and having alignment with values. Our values are derived from the most emotionally significant and charged experiences in our lives for better and for worse. Right. And so orientation is really helping us shift from kind of a fear based um, motivation to more of a uh, inspiration. So instead of what we're motivated to move away from it's what are we inspired to move towards? Right. And that's a big piece of kind of navigating burnout and emptiness and overwhelm. Right. And so um, how we can show up to our values from a place that's just yeah, more aspirational and less fear based. Um, And that's really helping us locate a sense of belonging within our own heart, right? A a sense of wholeness and being established in our wholeness. And again, that's coming from a place of rest.
0: Yeah. And of course, when you're overwhelmed, and in today's world where you're working 24 seven with your, you know, your iPhone in your pocket, and you can never get away from it, that definitely impacts your, uh, you know, your, your sex life as well, because you can't even focus and you can't find those uh, the right orientation to enjoy and those parts and those parts of your lives. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Excellent. So, narrate is the fifth um, pillar, and that's all about shifting the the narrative and the stories we hold about ourselves, right? Especially we're organized around wounding and organized around trauma, and so it's helping to kind of expand the aperture of possibility and generate create a more generative, life affirming story. Um, right, and so so much of the, you know, the conscious mind is five percent of what we believe, and the subconscious and the unconscious mind is really what we believe, and that's what's stored in our tissues and our cells. Um, and so, shifting from regressive behaviors and beliefs to more empowering behaviors and beliefs. So flipping the script
0: and keeping it positive, obviously going towards the positive and trying to remove the negative thoughts.
2: Yeah, like uh, developing a field of possibility, right? And our own imagination literally creates the structure of our brain and the structure of our lives. And so, um, again, for better or for worse. So with trauma, we're often superimposing the imprints of wounding and just kind of creating more of the same. Mm -hmm. So then our wounding becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So healing is, well, I actually have a say in this matter. I want to create and generate something else.
0: Mm -hmm. So interesting. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next.
2: And so identity is the sixth pillar. And so how much of our own identity is organized around our pain and our wounding and the lack of a secure attachment um, and how that becomes very fixed and rigid and calcified. Uh, And I look at actually identity is not fixed. Identity is moment to moment. It's process and change. So what if who we are doesn't need to be organized around pain and wounding. And so identity is uh, really the birthplace of innovation. It's the birthplace of clarity and insight and self-inquiry. So who am I outside of my pain and who am I outside of my wounding? Um, That's for us to get to experience. Um, Again, we can often be in default mode and just continue to superimpose or imprint upon the patterns of pain and trauma and limitation. And really identity is around expansion.
0: So do you do exercises with your your patients to help them to use their imagination and and see a different life or a different identity in the future?
2: Yeah, that's a lot of the neuroplasticity that I work with and is and then the neuroscience is using the five senses to start to feel into new possibilities and often using memory. Right. And, you know, the regulate we're going to use. Uh, a memory of safety right Mm -hmm. so with there's trauma and wounding safety may not feel accessible so can we find a snapshot in time where we felt safe and then can we relive that in our five senses and as we do that we're starting to then create new neural pathways of safety Mm -hmm. right where the default is the neural pathways of fear Mm -hmm. and so Yeah, identity. How do we create new neural pathways for each of these pillars to create a a new field of possibility in terms of the life we want to live? And that's the the world of manifestation. It's not so much what we want. It's how we want to feel. And as we start to tap into the vibration of how we want to feel and continue to cycle that through our awareness... Um, then it's alive in this present moment. And that is how we invite in more of that, that vibration.
0: Wow. Very, very cool. We I try to learning. do that. We try to do that. The license, we can.
1: license plate on my car says, be happy too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Getting the word out there. <laughs> okay. What's the last pillar?
2: Impact. And so, you know, the seven pillars are really helping people explore a journey from pain to purpose. And so a lot of people are looking for purpose outside of themselves. And I think of purpose is really who we are. It's a vibration. It's, a, it's uh, an expression of beingness. And so, um, you know, who are we when we are living as a healing vibration for good within our lives and within the world? And that's the impact. That's where we start to create ripple effects in our world. So purpose and impact isn't so much what we do. It's how we do it. And it's who we are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh. So I think the next thing I'd like to get some ideas from you is how people, your patients, and when they learn these seven pillars, how they can apply that to their own lives, their own sex lives and have better, more informed and more, I guess, present sex lives. I know we talked earlier about being our authentic self and how good that felt when Dave and I found our tribe, our lifestyle, how we felt that we've always should have been here from day one. But when you don't feel safe and you can't be your authentic self, how does that have an impact on your sexuality?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's going to lend itself to that shutdown state, right? It's going to lend itself to being dissociated, not being fully in touch with who we are. You know, and so much of my work is, is nondescriptive. I recently, a client was telling me that, you know, and they were coming in for trauma. They were never talking to me about sexuality, uh, but they said, wow. And they're, you know, well into their late 50s and their erections are stronger than they've ever been. You know, we've not worked with, you know, their genitals. We've just been, again, that symphony orchestra. Um, visualization. We're just helping the whole symphony orchestra of who they are come back in line. And as they start to make more music and we break up the noise, it's like all aspects of our physiological function, you know, our psychological function come online and optimize, right? So then it just, it lends itself. We're creating the climate for just more vitality, for more aliveness, for more connection, uh, for more power, right? Um, And so, yeah, I'm not really working with sexual, uh, I'm never working, and even though I'm helping people with anxiety, depression, and trauma, I'm never treating anxiety, depression, or trauma. I look at all of that, and if there's sexual dysfunction, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And Mm -hmm. I want, I'm helping people actually dissolve all of the causative factors that are the underbelly of that iceberg. Mm -hmm. And as those factors dissolve, so do um, the symptoms
0: yeah absolutely i can just imagine and just by living the opposite where we we do live an authentic life and we feel we have manifested our dream we have designed our own dream world here where we live and and do and um so with the work when you work with people and they they start then being attuned to what they want and what they need and how to get there they must feel and see changes in their bodies right well let's just look at you
1: i'm just going to interrupt for a second when we got together and we got rid of, I don't want to say we got rid of, we, we, we went through our divorce and we, we dealt with all the issues that we had there, you started having the most amazing orgasms.
0: I know. And it was kind of not overnight, but definitely very quickly. And I actually didn't have orgasms before. Rare was that I actually orgasmed in the 16 years of my marriage. And with David, it was just like happening and then happening and then happening
1: but your whole demeanor changed i think like reg was saying that symphony orchestra and you all started playing together versus you being pulled in 75 different directions
0: right and then when we did find the lifestyle even two years later yeah it exploded even further went up Absolutely. another notch yeah. so yeah i can just i can hear what you're saying and it makes so much sense because we kind of lived through that without realizing it mm-hmm. just getting yeah. rid of maybe a, a life that we didn't want to have when we pushed into a life that we did want to have really can change a whole lot in your body itself
2: yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were deriving more connection, more support. As you said, you found your tribe. You So you were finding like mine. So who you were was no longer just in isolation. Like you got to see yourself represented and reflected. And so it, it gave permission for all those parts of you to become fully expressed.
0: Exactly. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you mainly focus on anxiety and depression and, and pain, but If someone has like low self-esteem or even shame surrounding part of their their life or even sex, how can you help them with issues like that?
2: Yeah. Well, I look at at self-esteem stuff as fear. I look at shame and fear as really big parts of trauma, really big parts of anxiety, depression, chronic pain, sexual dysfunction, relational imbalance and challenge. And so, you know, it's kind of again, I'm not focusing on the shame or the, the fear. We're just helping their system have more capacity to start to look at it and be with it and make sense of it and understand it, right? And that's the attunement module is really understanding, oh, wow, when did I have these unmet needs? And when did having those unmet needs sort of signal life or death? So bring up a lot of fear. Or in early development, when we're not getting our needs met, unconsciously, we are often signaling that I didn't get my needs met because something's wrong with me, oh. right? And so it's like, actually, no, my primary caregivers just didn't have the capacity to meet, to get to provide for me. But in early development, if we're not getting what we need, it we immediately turn the arrow back on us, right? And that's where we become you know, master adapters, we start to hide parts of ourselves, or we start to perform parts of ourselves to get early developmental needs met. And how does that continue to carry on in adulthood, right? Oh, like, I don't want to upset them. So I will bite my tongue. Or, you know, so how do we again, continue in adulthood to perform or hide parts of ourselves. And that's, you know, not letting ourselves be fully authentically expressed. So that's a big piece. And again, coming back to that symphony orchestra, I I know I sound like a parrot, but as we restore all these parts of ourselves back into our harmonic resonance and we come back into wholeness, we locate more and more safety that we realize, oh, I don't have to hide a part of myself. I don't have to perform a part of myself. I can just be myself. And you know what? People will come and go. Not everyone's going to like my authentically expressed self. And that'll be okay because... I like myself. I'm okay with myself. And that's going to invite in other people who are just as okay with myself as I am. I
0: think I kind of went through something like that when I went through menopause because being in the lifestyle and being open to sexuality as we were, and then my libido took a huge dive and I felt like I still had to perform. I'm going to say, because people are expecting Carol to be Carol and I wasn't feeling it because you know, things were changing in my body but I kind of, re- not regret, I won't say that, but I, I kind of, I'm glad that I'm over menopause. I'm now on hormone replacement therapy. My libido's not how it was when I was in my 40s and 50s. So I'm at the end of my 50s now, but I still feel that I'm, um, I'm okay. I don't have to pretend to be the old Carol who was like so hot and horny. I couldn't wait to jump on a cock, but now I just do it when I feel like it. And I don't have to pretend that I want it every minute of the day. So yeah. I think I've kind of found a little balance in there.
2: Yeah, that's like honoring, honoring your needs, Mm -hmm. honoring your desires. And, you know, needs, wants, desires do change through different phases of life. And they can change depending on moment to moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Right? I mean, I'm I've learned over the years with relationship, it's very easy for me. If if this isn't working relationally, you know, let's say sexually, like I've learned I'm I'm not going to let myself just default to a freeze response. It's like, no, this isn't working. Like, yeah, this is awkward that I'm ending this, you know, this engagement and this. uh, It's not working. And, you know, but that was after years of having that part of me frozen and having that part of me dissociated and not having the words to honor that part of my desire or lack thereof. You know, so that's a journey. Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting to the end of the show. And before we ask you some final advice, there's people out there who listen to our show all the time and they have issues with premature ejaculation and their inability to orgasm and performance anxiety. And society says, you know, sometimes when you have those issues, you just have to live with it. But after listening to you and talking to you and reading some of your stuff, am I correct in assuming that we don't have to live with those if we don't have a physiological problem that we can work through them and almost anything can be solved?
2: I, again, everyone's circumstances are unique, right? right. So I can't speak into every individual and, you know, sometimes there are literal physical traumas that are, you know, maybe irreparable, have caused certain damage to, you know, certain physiological function. But yeah, if there's an emotional component, you know, the emotions creating the stagnation of energy. And so yeah, if there's an emotional component, a a pattern of trauma stored in the body that's related to it, the relational piece around intimacy, all those pieces can be addressed and again, a lot of people are addressing these emotional components, let's say, through talk therapy, and I think that can be very valuable to develop more awareness, but that doesn't necessarily trickle down to how some of those emotional traumatic imprints are stored in the body. And that's that's the power of working with energy medicine, because it's helping to clear up those distortions and those stagnations and those blockages emotionally as they are taking up residence in the physical body and then impacting our physiological function. Um, so... Yeah, the body's designed to heal. We just need the right tools and the right support to allow it to heal. And I think that's why a lot of people are compelled with my story. You know, most medical doctors and chiropractors would say it's impossible to unravel and heal scoliosis. Well, I'm three inches taller. And since I've been (laughs) in the world of podcasting, I've met three other people who have had severe unraveling of their spine. Wow. Right? Wow. um, So, yeah, I think a lot of diagnoses are. Um, kind of facing these limitations and once we start to believe in the diagnosis and the prognosis again there can be some value in that so we can get you know sometimes we do need interventions medically so there's value in that there's a time and a place for everything Um, but I think a lot of times medical interventions are just pain and symptom management they're not actually doing the deeper healing that's necessary Um, so they're just kind of keeping people like walking on eggshells Um, and there's a lot more healing that can happen beneath the surface.
0: Wow. And one of the things that I took from all of your discussions today was that, you know, being a parent as, as a mom and, and a dad, David's a dad, being a parent is hard work, especially when you have a career and you're working all the time as well as being a parent. And I can just imagine things that we do maybe reflectively or reflexively, I should say, and maybe not thinking twice about it. We don't have we didn't take classes of early childhood development as just a parent, you know, like teachers do and the caregivers do. We just do things on the go. And maybe we have inflicted some trauma onto our children at some point in their lives. They've certainly put trauma <laughs> on us. Is this going <laughs> to is this going to reflect back on them uh, in their physical and emotional needs as adults um, in the future of some time at some time?
2: I mean, here's the thing. I mean, as much as I was talking about developmental trauma and a lack of like consistent, reliable care, um, I forget the statistic I was reading recently. It's like it's impossible for a parent and a caregiver to be 100% emotionally attuned to their child. That will just never happen. So I think the statistic was, but if the child knows that, you know, you're going to show up for them at least half the time that's usually gonna be enough for them to kind of work through, you know, the challenges of life and know that, you know, they had their basic needs met. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it's not about getting it perfect, right? And even if we, you know, I work with lot and myself included, have, you know, had a lot of that missing support and a lot of healing repair can happen, you know, after the fact. Yeah. So wow. um you know, it's it's not that the, then that just sets us up for a whole life. I mean, that's the thing. Trauma can either lead to a lot of disaster and harm or it can lead to a lot of triumph. Mm-hmm. And that's for me, I like the idea of like m- we can mine the gold of unresolved trauma to develop even more meaning and significance, more pleasure, more joy uh, in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once once we get in touch with that, that pain and the wounding, there's just so much more life and vitality beneath it.
0: Wow, that's great. Well said. Well, I'm glad that we ended on that good note. I feel a little bit better now. Not too guilty about what I did to my kids as they were growing up. But anyhow, we're not going to go there. So what would you say would be the top two reasons that a couple should contact an energy healer to improve their sex life?
2: Yeah, It's, it's all about opening up your life force energy, letting your life flow, moving from stagnation and contraction to movement and expression and health and vitality is all about movement and expression.
0: Well, wow.
1: Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Well, Greg Whiting, I think we're going to have to ba- have you back on our show because Carol and I have definitely taken some pointers from you. Uh, thank you so much for sh- sharing all that great information. Why don't you tell everyone how they can reach you, your website, find out about your courses and um, get in touch with you.
2: Yeah. GregWhiting.com, W I E T I N G. And yeah, you can learn about my one-on-one work and my group program and community Um, And as much as I help people heal anxiety, depression, chronic pain and trauma, you know, most people on the other side of that are just coming to access more truth, more power, more courage, more aliveness. So people are just looking to, you know, live on a growth path and come into an expanded state to break through upper limits. Um, You know, healing work is a really valuable support. You know, if you have big dreams, if you have a big vision, if you have a big mission, you know, that requires big support. And that's what I'm here for.
0: Wow. That's really awesome. And of course, if you missed any of this information, you just have to go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, where every one of our guests has their own guest page with all their information. And you can even contact them directly through through there.
1: Absolutely. And like we did today, we're learning more and more every week from all our expert guests. We hope you do too. If you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolyndavid.com. Alrighty, the end of another great show with another super guest, Greg Whiting. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. Our pleasure. And as we do every week, we want to thank all our listeners for being there week in and week out.
0: And join us again next time for another hour of the Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, sexual health and pleasure, and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny.
1: Well, that's it for our show today. Carol and I and Greg send you lots of love and great sex. Please stay safe. And of course, stay sexy, everyone. Until next time.